So we talk automotive, if we talk white goods uh, for households, or if we talk uh, building hospitals or, or roads, bridges, whatever. Steel is a must uh, <laughs> on this planet, uh, good or bad, but it's a must. And But at the same time, we need to address the CO2 dimension in, into it. And you need buyers of steel that are increasingly committing to buying lower carbon steel. And for all those things to happen together, it requires immense, not just political will, but societal pressure as well. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Earthlings podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Roseland. I'm a policy analyst and a writer. And I'm your other co-host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I support companies in the energy transition with PR and Technica Communications and all genders with women in clean tech and sustainability. And if you like this episode, please consider subscribing to our show wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it, we're there. We're also on social media and we have email addresses. So please feel free to contact us and give us your feedback or don't because we appreciate you being our listeners all the same. Yes, and today we're going to talk about the riddle of steel, or rather the riddle of how to make steel without cooking the planet. It's green steel or fossil-free steel. Riddle me this, Batman. How do you get the carbon out of steel? Well, actually, you need, you need a little bit of carbon to make steel, but we're talking about how do you get some of this fossil fuel energy out uh, as an input into the steelmaking process. Before we get into that, why don't we talk a little bit about why steel is such a problem, Christian? Sure. Well, I mean, we can go back even further. Steel is one of the most fundamental material inputs in our civilization. It's not the sort of thing we just can just say do without. I mean, bridges, buildings, cars, tools, there's so many things that we use, even utensils that we use in our everyday life that are made from steel. And it, it's been such an important material for us. The problem is, is that to make steel, you need iron. And to get iron from iron ore into iron involves a lot of carbon. And specifically coking coal, like nearly pure carbon coal. And a lot of energy too, right? Yeah, both. And that's whether you're recycling steel or making new steel from iron ore. And when you think about it, some of this stuff is so basic and ubiquitous. I mean, like you said, steel is everywhere. And it's easy to forget that, number one. And number two, it's easy to forget that steel is a commodity. And usually, you know, price is a really important factor in what type of steel uh, a big company might buy. And it has a lot of embedded carbon in it, both from its manufacturing process and the energy that is used in that process. So when you look at the greenhouse gas emissions, you're looking at between 7 and 8% of the entire planet's GHG emissions coming from this one commodity. Of course, depending on where you look at the data, but between 7 and 8% is, is what we see broadly. Yeah, and the problem is it's been hard to figure out how to get the carbon out. You know, for context, we've pretty much figured out how to decarbonize our electricity system. It's really a matter of doing it. We're starting to do it. It's really a matter of scaling it. We know how to clean up heating and transportation. You know, more EVs, less driving, heat pumps. You know, the electrification of both of these things is a major strategy. But then we get to things like industrial processes like making steel. And these are just technically harder to do. In, in a zero-carbon way. They've been called the hard-to-abate sectors or the harder-to-abate sectors. And steel's pretty much the biggest. Steel and cement making are the biggest ones. And is that, you think, because it's extremely difficult or people have been putting their focus on other things first? I think it's both. I think that it, okay. it legitimately has been difficult. You know, when you talk about these things, a lot of times the problem is, is that it's, it's such a core part of the process, such a core part of the process of making the iron that you need for steel involves coal. So fortunately, we've come up with some new processes. And, you know, when we talk about this green steel, it's a new process that's, we're really talking about a new process that's come about using hydrogen to make steel. And incidentally, this is being done in Sweden. Sweden has plants that are making this green steel. And they're not just making it, but they're also selling it. Companies are actually lining up to buy this fossil-free steel. 
the fact that there's a market for it is really key. And that, to me, sounds very promising, especially when you think about the need for steel is only going to increase when with countries like India and other nations in the global south continuing to grow their economies. So we went right to the source for all of you. We talked to a few Swedes on how you make green steel, uh, what it entails, uh, the markets for it, and and some uh, more future-paced aspects of uh, what to expect in the 21st century when it comes to this commodity. So the first guest is a former colleague of Christians at RMI. That is the artist formerly known as Rocky Mountain Institute. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Cook-Blank is a global expert on green steel, and he gives us a breakdown of what this is and how it works, starting with how steel is made. So most steel in the world currently is made from um, iron ore and coking coal. So you dig both out of the ground and you move them to a steel mill and you, um, you burn the coal at high temperatures to... Um, produce uh, what's called crude steel. And then you take that crude steel and you um, you process it in a few other uh, steel mills, basically, to make different grades of steel, whether it's um, stainless steel or other kinds of variants of, of steel. So, Thomas, when when we talk about steel, we've what we are learning on this episode and what people have been picking up over the past few years is that the making of steel is very carbon intensive, especially I've um, learned from Christian uh, doing research on this show around uh, the blast furnace method. So um, why, you know, this is, this is the, you know, sort of the dominant way that they make primary steel. So what about it makes it so carbon intensive? So I think there, the, the, on the highest level, there are two reasons. One is that you use coal as the primary energy source, and it's a high-temperature process. And the second is that iron ore, uh, that is the main input, is basically iron atoms combined with oxygen atoms in a molecule. And I, I don't want to get into too much chemistry here, but basically you don't want the oxygen. And the way you get the oxygen out is that you use carbon – uh, as a reagent to combine into CO2. So you the, the byproduct of getting the oxygen out of the iron ore with coal is carbon dioxide. Right. Now, but there's another method to do this. As we've discussed, there's the direct iron reduction process using hydrogen. So how does this eliminate the emissions of primary steelmaking and how does this work? So first of all, instead of using carbon uh, to combine with oxygen, you're using hydrogen to combine with oxygen. You get uh, basically H2O, H for hydrogen, O for oxygen. It's, the, it's also known as water. So the byproduct is water instead of carbon dioxide. And, um, and that's good because not only is uh, water not necessarily uh, contributing as much to the global warming, but it's also a productive byproduct in many, uh, in many ways, and it could be put to productive secondary use. I think the second reason is that in, you're not using coal as an energy source. And of course, it depends a little bit on where you get your hydrogen, and there are many ways to make hydrogen. Uh, but in a supply chain where the hydrogen is made without emissions, effectively the whole steel produ- producing process is also made without greenhouse gas emissions. So this isn't theory, though. This is happening right now in That's plants correct. in northern Sweden. Can you talk about what has happened in northern Sweden over the last few years with this technology? So the technology has been around for a while. It's called direct reduction. It's been used. Um, with natural gas instead of hydrogen in other plants as well. It's, uh, but hydrogen has been, uh, it's a slightly different, you need to adjust the process and hydrogen has been expensive. So it hasn't really, the industry really hasn't shifted over to using hydrogen. Uh, and the, um, it's been so expensive that the industry hasn't really invested that much energy into, into, um, practical research. So what happened really in northern Europe or northern uh, Scandinavia is that a um, partly 
politically backed, if you like, or state-backed consortia was created between a utility, a steelmaker, and an iron ore producer to figure out how to make steel without carbon emissions. And they created this joint venture that built a first uh, pilot plant at commercial scale. And I think what really happened was, number one, they they just did it. Instead of talking about it and researching it, they started really engineering it and building it. And when they did, they also figure out that the cost assumptions that the industry had been looking at seemed to be on the conservative side. So, you know, the, the cost threshold to achieve this low carbon steel was significantly less than the broad understanding. So that, that really started to, to move the industry and policymakers a bit here in Europe in particular. And now it's picking up outside of Europe as well. Excellent. Now, there's also in addition to this primary steel made from iron ore and coking coal, there is recycled steel made in electric arc furnaces where we just, you know, take a car in there, dump it in, melt it down or with taking the components out of the car, car body in there or right. some other thing, some other big chunk of steel and melt it down. So why do we need primary steel and why can't we just use recycled steel to meet our needs? Because the market is growing. So you need um, – there is a limit to recycled steel, which is basically the amount of steel we put into the market 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and it has done um, done its work. You know, it's been uh, providing a service or a product to the market. And then we put it in the in the recyc- back into the recycling stream. And uh, so the amount of scrap in the market is reflecting how big the steel industry was a couple of decades ago. And since the market is continuously growing and we just went through this major growth phase when China was industrializing and building out infrastructure, uh, that scrap stream has been a smaller fraction of the total demand. So let's just say we can get enough green hydrogen. What are the prospects for direct reduced iron made with hydrogen to replace blast furnaces globally? Is this inevitable? Is it just a matter of time? Is this how let's, long will it take? Let's put it this way. I, the, the steel industry is, is they don't have many options. If you, if you are truly um, envisioning a steel industry without carbon emissions, we will unlikely get enough scrap to make steel with, uh, you know, exclusively from recycled steel, and we will not get all the grades we need, so the high-quality steels. We will need primary steelmaking. And there are two options. One is to put carbon capture on the existing mills, and the other is um, another non-coal-based production route. And uh, hydrogen-based direct production is one of the most commercialized technologies, and there are a couple of other runner-ups that – is like you know they're likely to play a role and capture some market share in the future. Whether you look at electrolysis, but they're on a they're a little bit behind in terms of scale up. So I think to your point, uh, hydrogen based direct reduction is one of the few options the steel industry has today. Right, and I think you're talking about the molten oxide electrolysis that Boston Metals is championing. They are. It's just uh, the direct okay. electrolysis of steel has many flavors as well, and they have patented uh, one of those processes. But but yes, effectively, they're one of the champions of uh, basically skipping the hydrogen and running the electrolysis directly on the iron ore. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about regional developments. Obviously, you have this one plant that's already making green steel, or, right. or already making... Iron, the iron ore to make green steel in northern Sweden. You have another very big one that's being planned to come on. We have a third one that's being planned in Spain or Portugal. I think Iridrola has been a little bit vague about the location there. Uh, but not so much from the rest of the world. Uh, when do you expect green steel to start being adopted at a large scale in India and China and some of the other regions that make more steel than Europe? So there are a lot of uh, ways this can play out. I think the short answer to that is when it's uh, when the cost comes down and it becomes cost competitive, right? And with that said, even when it's 
when you do get new production assets that are cost competitive, it still takes some time to replace the existing existing plants. So the transition can really happen in two decades, roughly, to replace all the mills. I think, of course, you know, the market is bigger now, uh, and you can, but, but there is still, uh, some, some timelines here to keep in mind of just getting the, 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 the plants replaced. So from the time of reaching that cost competitiveness, um, you will probably look at 10 to 20 years of, of sort of just asset turnover. With that said, there are more disruptive ways the steel industry could play out as well, which would be more oriented around completely new steel making regions, picking up the new technology um, and leveraging much lower cost renewables than you have in Europe and US and, and just building out um, a new steel industry. And arguably lower cost renewables also than, than most of China and parts of India as well. Surprise, surprise, it all comes down to cost. Just like anything in the green economy, the more sustainable option has to be just as good, if not better, than the conventional method and cheaper. Christian, why does it seem like sustainable options are like the women in the workplace? We have to be better at our job than our male counterparts just to get noticed. (laughs) Good point there, Lisa Ann. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's talk about cost. Cost is a moving target because there's the cost of what these things cost now. There's what they're going to cost next year. There's what they're going to cost five years from now. The cost of both renewable energy and electrolyzers are falling. And electrolyzers as a new technology are scaling quickly. And so costs are coming down quickly. And, you know, we've seen with a lot of clean technologies that the costs come down faster than we expect. Mm Mm-hmm. And with everything happening in the hydrogen economy in general, there's a lot of demand for electrolyzers. So the assumption would be those costs will come down at a decent clip because there is so much demand across the board for these technologies. Yeah. I mean, assuming that we end up getting the manufacturing to support that, which seems to be happening. Absolutely. Okay. So... And even though it's more expensive, you mentioned uh, at the top of the show that people are buying green steel today. Who is that? Yes. And you know, it's interesting because when the hybrid project in Sweden was first getting going, we were told, oh, people are not going to buy green steel because it's more expensive. But there are companies that have signed contracts with makers of green steel and are anxiously awaiting their shipments, uh, specifically car and truck makers, Volvo, Mercedes-Benz, and Scania. It makes sense to me that car makers, especially in Europe, who sell to consumer markets would, and they've already outlined their commitments to electric vehicles. And so it makes sense that they would want to expand that commitment to sustainability or you know, climate protection or whatever you want to call it to include materials that are within the vehicle, such as the steel. And my question, though, is like how much of this activity is a true commitment versus, you know, it just being a new way to market to customers and somewhat greenwashing? Well, you know, it is good marketing, but that doesn't mean there isn't a real commitment here because money is being put where mouths are. These companies that have signed contracts for green steel are also investing big money in the companies that are making green steel. And there's a race going on to see which of these can be the first to mass produce vehicles with green steel. Yeah, so let's talk about how many vehicles are on the road today (laughs) that have green steel in them, right? So are they coming off the assembly line? Well, okay. So you're not likely to see any of them on the road unless you count gravel roads because Volvo has made a mining vehicle with green steel. It's a pilot, but they're expecting more to come out this year. Oh, that's the autonomous all-electric one I remember hearing about. Yep. This vehicle is a load carrier. It's designed for use in quarrying and mining, and it's capable of working in a convoy with other autonomous vehicles to pick up and transport materials around a pre-programmed route. So sort of think like Pac-Man with mining vehicles. And it's... That's better than like the the Roomba (laughs) idea that I had running in my head when you were saying that. (laughs) 
Yeah, this one doesn't get out very often, but it, it's powered by an electric motor. <laughs> And it's got no emissions when it's in operation. So, you know, you think of mining as this, like, really dirty industry. And here we've got this, mm-hmm. you know, emissions-free mining vehicle that's made with green steel. Very different. Very cool. And we'll put a photo and a link to the video in our show notes so that you can all check out that load carrier. Okay, so this is really intriguing to me that the first fossil-free steel vehicle isn't actually a passenger car, but a heavy-duty machine. A work vehicle, if you will. And speaking of work vehicles, there is an appetite for commercial truck makers to purchase the steel, and their customers are even more cost conscious than the average consumer, I would assume. So that's why we spoke to a truck maker in Europe about their use of green steel. Yes. Our next guest is Anders Williamson, the executive VP and head of industrial operations at Swedish truck maker Scania. It's uh, a couple of different reasons behind our our investment into green steel. Uh, Of course, we are not into the consumer uh, market. We are a a true business-to-business player. Uh, However, our our products are used for transporting, to a large extent, consumer goods, uh, which could could be food, could be medicine, vaccine, uh, and, of course, machinery and other kinds of equipment as well. And, And as... Basically, all educated consumers on the planet have a, a true understanding that we need to to change our way of living in order to save the planet. Uh, there will be and has already started to a certain extent the pressure on the entire supply chain to decarbonize. And, and that's where we currently see a, a, a niche which will, uh, in, in the future, not be any longer be a niche, but rather be the, the, the natural uh, solution, uh, is to provide to our customers a carbon-free product, not only related to the propulsion of the vehicle in uh, going from a fossil-driven uh, combustion engine over to a green energy electrical vehicle, but also in the material that we use when producing the vehicle, uh, making sure that we create as small a carbon footprint as, as possible. Uh, so so, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a strategic bet, you can say, from the Scania side to, to invest in green steel, but it's also a very big uh, contribution from our side in the, in the climate uh, assignment that many of us have taken on uh, in order to save the planet. Do you mind if I ask you, uh, why have you chosen to go with green steel instead of uh, recycled steel from arc furnaces? We, we, we actually use both. Uh, oh, okay. We, we have used recycled steel for, for many, many years. Uh, the, the reason for uh, jumping on the green steel initiative is that for, for certain grades and certain components on the vehicle we need virgin steel and 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 that's mainly today it's connected to the to the body uh, and the shape of the uh, of the cab uh, because recycled steel will will with the current technologies available it will not be clean enough and and in in this regard i'm not referring to to carbon dioxide uh, cleanliness but but rather from particles etc making the surface not smooth enough and not good enough for for meeting the high expectations of the scania customers in 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 regards of of visual appearance of the of the vehicle Uh, and and that is one big similarity between a, a truck and a pass car that, that we need virgin material for the outer body of, of, uh, of our vehicle. Whereas we can use then recycled material for forged and, and, and costed uh, brackets and, and weight carrying uh, components within the vehicle, which we already today do to, to a very large extent. For people who are unaware, what type of vehicles do you build at, at Scania and, and where might people see them on the road? Uh, the Scania vehicle is, is a heavy truck. It's uh, with the U.S. Uh, denomination. We call them Class 8 trucks. Uh, in, in the European legislation, it's uh, a gross weight, gross vehicle weight of, of 16 tons and above. 
uh, and we produce up to uh, 80, 90. Uh, so it's uh, it's big trucks used in many different applications in in construction area, in in uh, regional distribution, long haulage, of course, uh, heavy transport, etc. I'm curious to know what about the cost? It seems to me that there's probably the green steel is is going to be more expensive than regular primary steel, especially to begin with. Uh, um, exactly. That's correct. Uh, so what is that difference in cost and, and why is this premium worth it to your customers? There is a quite a significant, a significant premium, that's for sure. The background is, of course, that the, the, the production of hydrogen to produce high, pure Pure hydrogen is the quite is a quite uh, expensive process and 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 requires a lot of energy, uh, and that uh, compared to 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 digging out coal from the ground and 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 make uh, coke out of it, which is a fairly uh, cheap process. So so and and by by heat. By, by heating up the coke and making it burn, you get the, the, the temperature more or less for free, you can say. So, so the, the, it's, it's very logical reasons behind this premium. It's, it's purely related to the process uh, difference as such. I, I think this, this premium will most likely change over time. Uh, and there, there's a number of factors behind that. One is that it seems with quite high accuracy that a lot of the politicians in in many parts of the world are seriously seriously looking into carbon dioxide taxation and and uh, if we take european the european community as as an example they are talking about levels around 130 euros per ton and if if let me rephrase not if rather when that comes into play, then the premium will be on the advantage side for the green steel. Uh, so, so purely by, by putting a taxation on CO2 emissions, the green steel will become quite competitive. That's one dimension. The second dimension is, as I was into earlier, that there are a number of customers, but mainly customers' customer, putting pressure on our customers that they want a true carbon-free supply chain and that they are willing to pay for it, meaning that, uh, uh, that it will be a competitive edge for us and others in our business uh, offering uh, true green vehicles. And, and that competitive edge will most likely, my perception at least, my belief, uh, uh, result in higher volumes, and as volumes get higher, piece price or unit cost gets lower. So that's the second positive driving force for getting the 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 um, uh, green steel at the lower uh, lower cost. Looking forward to that. So yeah. yeah, let's let's talk about that. You 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 feel that the green steel will take over brown steel in a period of time. And obviously this, this dynamic with the existing steel companies that already have their blast furnaces, they're going to move slower, as you've mentioned. But for how long do you think green steel will remain somewhat niche? And when do you expect this? When do you expect it to take over the market? It's, it's of course, a, a very much of a, of a guessing game. But, but I think the, the time schedules from green steel, H2 green steel and, and, and similar players in the market is that they are, they have a commercialized product in, in, uh, in between three and five years from now. And then it will be a number of, of years with following a growth, uh, meaning that I would guess in between seven to 10 years from now, uh, if we look on on the world production of steel, uh, it will be a quite tough head-to-head competition tonnage-wise in between green and, and, and brown steel, uh, meaning that most likely in 15 to 20 years, there will be basically no brown steel left. But this is, of course, a big, big guessing game. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a dramatic turnaround for such a big industry. <laughs> Yeah, it yeah. is. It is for sure, and, and we clearly. I mean, H2 Green Steel is is the company where where Scania have invested, but but we have 
we we have bought steel for for over 100 years so we have a lot of acquaintances in the, in this business and and we see that the activity level is really really high also in the in the uh, among the legacy uh, companies in uh, to to invest into this uh, technology in somewhat different ways of course but but all of them are really active in, in uh, jumping on this train because it's simply a matter of survival Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and you know, one thing we haven't touched on is the, the type of hydrogen that is envisioned here to be used. Obviously, everybody, you want to assume that green hydrogen made from renewable sources or having a very low carbon intensity would be the ideal uh, uh, hydrogen used, and that's the one that companies would use to make the green steel. But that's not a given, right? And there are people who say that uh, we can't possibly make enough hydrogen from from uh, low carbon sources to supply all the ideas that people have uh, for using that hydrogen in a variety of of means. So, what do you what do you see coming coming uh, from your from your side? What do you, what do you what do you predict? Uh, what's the mix of hydrogen that we're going to see here? Well, well, I'm not an expert in, in the area of hydrogen, but, but I mean, we can take one example, one dimension that we're pushing quite much from from the Scania side. I think we we we, we clearly state that it's the, the 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 green hydrogen that we can produce. It's far better that we use that to make green steel instead of using it for propelling vehicles in, uh, through fuel cells, uh, because that, that 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 is far better for the planet. The challenge with with with, with hydrogen is that I think there is on the on the soil of the planet, uh, uh, assuming of course that we invest in solar panels and and, and windmills, there is enough energy to produce green hydrogen. The challenge is how to distribute it, because it's 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 a tricky commodity to distribute, to store and to, and to transport. And this is then coming back to the, the advantage that we have in Sweden. We can produce it locally and consume it locally, uh, and that's good, of course. But but I, I mean, we could. There, there is no nothing. Uh, Making it impossible to produce a lot of hydrogen on uh, on the Sahara Desert through solar panels, but it will be quite a challenge to distribute it to the point of of consumption from the from the Sahara <laughs> Desert because there is not too much happening on that plan, uh, part of the planet for time being at least. So, so did so, I did I hear you correctly that you think it's better to um, to use hydrogen that will be green hydrogen that's generated to produce green steel versus powering vehicles. Yes. Because of the pollution that's generated from the the steel making process versus the the emissions from a vehicle. Yeah. And and, uh, because if when producing green steel, you will have an extremely high utilization level of the hydrogen into the uh, into the reduction process when 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 producing steel when you use hydrogen into a fuel cell vehicle the you can only use 50% of the of the of the energy that you have put in 50% is waste give and take uh, so 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 and there is also risk that if we push further and more for fuel cells and and uh, uh, that the hydrogen needed for fuel cell vehicles will actually not be green it will rather be brown and that it will actually from a climate perspective be even worse I really appreciate how bold Anders is in his assessment of how we should be using green hydrogen most effectively. It hadn't occurred to me to think about how much of the hydrogen can we utilize in a specific use case, and perhaps that green steel is a better use case for the green hydrogen that we're going to be making compared to transportation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Anders really has a well-articulated vision of the future, mm-hmm. which... You don't always expect to hear from someone who's in the trucking industry. I mean, you don't just say, oh, you know, those crazy visionary trucking guys. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So South Park was wrong when Randy said that uh, 
coal mining and truck driving are not exactly jobs of the future? Well, coal mining is still not a job of the future. Let's be clear on that. But trucking, yeah, we still need trucks. I mean, that's still how so much of our goods get places, Mm -hmm. including the food that we you know, whether or not they'll have drivers, though, I think is a question. But still, oh, we need yeah. <laughs> we need clean, zero emission solutions Yeah, for those trucks to travel. Absolutely. And, you know, I see this as part of a push for hydrogen from heavy industry more broadly. And when I think about that, the first person that comes to mind is Andrew Forrest, the mining billionaire in Australia. Oh, yeah. He's the head of Fortescue Industries, you know, and he's going around the world preaching the gospel of green hydrogen. To anyone mm-hmm. who will listen, which, you know, when you're a billionaire, that's a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And we need people like that, you know. Didn't he sign like a potential $50 billion green hydrogen agreement with a German utility and was going to produce like 5 million tons of green hydrogen by 2030? I think so. I frankly have a hard time keeping up with the green hydrogen deals that Andrew mm-hmm. Forrest does. I mean, it's like this week he's in the Baltics and next week he's in Spain. And, you know, he's just like traveling around the world, inking MOUs with the heads of governments, you know, so I just. He's like, he's like the Oprah of green hydrogen. You get a car and you get a deal and you get a deal. You get an MOU. You get an MOU. Everybody gets MOUs. But I appreciate Mr. Forrest our mining billionaire who's going out there and making, trying to make green hydrogen a reality. I'll take it because you don't always get that from a mining executive. And I can see how him being bullish on green hydrogen is good for his business, though. Sure. And he sees a market for the iron ore that his company produces. Mm-hmm. But it's also a way for his industry, which is traditionally a dirty industry, to be part of a better future. And I think people want to do that. I think people want to be part of a better future. And if they can keep doing that in the industry that they're in and not have to retrain for a new job, hey, you know, that's, I think people will gravitate towards that, particularly younger people. I think the whole key is, we've talked about this a lot, but if everybody did their part for sustainability, each of us in our own sphere of influence, no matter how small or large that influence is, then we would get some significant movement. Well, it has to be. It has to be all parts of society. Mm-hmm. You know, we still end up needing the services like, you know, transportation, like energy, you know, like heating that we've always needed. And, and you know, the energy transition and the transition to a decarbonized world that isn't just electricity. That's our whole lives. Mm-hmm. You know, our whole lives right now, we're bound up in this fossil fuel complex and they have to be, the whole thing has to be re-engineered. So that means jobs for a lot of people and a lot of people in, and roles for a lot of people in places that we haven't traditionally thought about, like trucking. Or steel making. Yeah. Today's show. And, you know, I think everything you're saying is, is really about how do these heavy industries become more responsible with their operations and, and, and taking into account the impact that they have on our environment and the, the living beings that are here. And, when it comes to steelmaking, there's some people that would say that the process goes beyond just getting the carbon out of the manufacturing. It's about water management or labor rights, all these other factors. So actually, I guess that's a good segue into our last guest. She is sort of has a broader definition of quote unquote green steel uh, going beyond that carbon aspect. Her name is Anne Claire Howard, and at the time of this recording, she was the Chief Executive Officer of Responsible Steel, and she's still focused on sustainability procurement, this time around supply chain practices as the Director of Procurement at the NGO UN Ops. The challenge is it's a sector where demand keeps growing. And also, if you're thinking long-term, Steel is a fundamental part of of the energy transition. If you look at the embodied carbon of of many sectors, like, you know, building sector, automotive, renewable energy, uh, white goods, steel is a large chunk of their own emissions as embodied carbon. But steel is also, you know, looking at the developing world, it's part of increasing urbanization, it's part of infrastructure development. And key markets, you know, like India, China, but Vietnam and other places will keep needing steel for the foreseeable future. So growth is projected to be quite significant by 2050. 
But what we can't have is a growth in steel production, which is accompanied by a growth in the greenhouse gas emissions from the sector. So if we could reduce significantly the emissions from steel and, and get the steel industry as a whole on a clear pathway to, to net zero, the positive impact and, and the win for our planet would be absolutely significant. And in the long term, you know, the beauty of steel is it is recyclable. So you could, in the future, look at a circular steel economy. The challenge for that and the reason why it's it's not done yet is, first of all, a large proportion of steel is already being recycled. And the demand for scrap is much, much, much higher than the availability of scrap. So a lot of you know the future of steel and looking at circularity is about understanding what do we need to do differently in the way that we produce steel today, but also use it to facilitate that circular economy in the long run, because we could, you know, aspire to a fully circular steel economy. So would you say that the the standardization in that framework that you developed um, is a way of, of, of supporting these corporations to commit to some of our goals in the Paris Agreement and help keep emissions below 2C? Because yeah, we're, so the, we're looking at the value chain. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the current uh, responsible steel standard as it is, and again, like any standard, you know, it'll be revised in, in a couple of years. The, the aim is to revise it at a minimum every five years. And we know that, you know, things can change at speed. But the current standard as it sits uh, for certified sites is compatible with with the two degree scenario. You know, it does look at whether there's an alignment with Paris, uh, not just at the corporate level, but then for the specific sites, whether each site that is certified has a clear strategy and a clear roadmap to decarbonizing that's in line with Paris. And and by a, a credible you know roadmap, we're not talking just, you know, a plan on a piece of paper saying, yeah, yeah, our ambition is to follow this curve and eventually we'll reach net zero. They need to have an auditable, credible plan, which is backed by, you know, allocated capital expenditure, allocated research to ensure that they stick to that trajectory. And, you know, when they go for recertification three years down the line, one of the things that we'll look at is, well, are you on track? And if you're not, you run the risk of losing your certification. So let's talk about China. Half the world's steel industry is in China. Obviously, they take a very different approach to environmental regulation and to labor. Um, you know, when trying to reach net zero in this industry, and you know, net zero by Paris means 2050, China doesn't have a target till 2060. Uh, how do you deal with the different perspectives in that industry, which is so much of the global industry? China is, uh, and in the steelmaking sector, is always the elephant in the room. Um, although China has a 2060 target, what we have seen is a number of Chinese steel manufacturers actually uh, give public 2050 targets. So there is hope, uh, and I think uh, I think we need to to remember that. And I think with China, I, I would also put India in there in terms of, of the other elephant in the room, because they're the two nations where the growth in steel production, but also steel demand is, is absolutely critical. Um, I think, yes, you, you're right to say, you know, the standards tend to be different. There's also been issues around, you know, quality and, and safety to a certain degree. Uh, but I think what we need to take into account is that the energy mix is currently different. There's a, a lot of political reasons that that leads to, you know, challenges in in reducing carbon footprint there. But uh, we've also seen, you know, ex, you know, expansive growth in in renewable energy in China, for instance, and you know the the reduction potentially of of coal mining, at least for for steel making. Although power generation is a different question. But for us as responsible steel, you know, we, we can't ignore China. And to be fair, as a planet, we can't ignore China when it comes to steel making and, and the carbon footprint. But we have been in, engaging with, with steelmakers all across Asia, and we are starting to have members in you know, places like South Korea, uh, India. We've had some really positive conversations with Japanese and, and Chinese steelmakers. Uh, so there is, there is an awareness that, you know, they 
needs to do something. Um, the announcements, for instance, around the carbon border adjustment mechanism has led to a flurry of questions from Chinese steelmakers on what it would mean, whether being responsible steel certified would allow them to cross into the European market, things like that. So I think there's there's a lot of different moving parts. Uh, when it comes to our standard, obviously, you know, it would uh, you wouldn't have a Chinese steelmaker certified by responsible steel on on carbon footprint alone. They would have to meet our requirements on on environmental and social issues as well, uh, which could be a stretch. But we have seen other international standards make inroads into China. And the other part of the equation that that we haven't spoken about yet is the demand side. What we're seeing is, you know, an increasing number of buyers of steel placing fairly stringent requirements on the steelmakers that they buy from. And that can change things quite quick, quickly. And a lot of China's steel production obviously stays in China, but, but a lot of it is exported as well. And therefore, there's questions being raised on, you know, how that steel is produced and not just on its carbon footprint. So I think that if, if there's a you know, pull from the market as well as a push through policy and and other requirements. Inevitably, China will will be part of the solution. And you know, I'm not renowned for my famous optimism, but I am quite hopeful when when we think about China in the steel markets and and the inroads that it can make quite quickly if it sets its mind to it. That's fascinating because yeah, market forces. Yeah, you're right. Can be very powerful at changing the landscape very quickly. Who are some of the potential early customers of this steel? There's a lot happening, I think, on the demand side. And, and that's a really important part of the puzzle is given the investments that are going to be required to produce lower carbon steel and ultimately you know, net zero steel, you need to know that there's a market for it. And so demand signals are absolutely critical to, to kind of make these investments happen and make them worthwhile. And so we are seeing a lot of partnerships between buyers and steel producers kind of, you know, getting ahead of the market and saying, you know, yes, your technology isn't producing at scale yet, but I commit to buying your product when it's ready and I will commit to buy volumes of it. And that's that's working really well in terms of initiating the kind of breakthrough technology part of the equation. I think the big challenge is how do you reach sufficient demand to push a whole sector, a whole industry that's so huge and so global to do things like that? Um, and the automotive sector is quite specific in the sense that they tend to have you know, uh, one-on-one relationships with the steel producers just because of the very specific requirements they have in the steel that goes into the automotive sector. It's much more challenging in other sectors where steel is treated like any other commodity. You know, it's, oh, I need, you know, 10 tons of steel. I want it at price X. I will buy it wherever on the market. I don't really need to know which producer it came from, which meal, which mill. What's important is, does it meet my spec in terms of, you know, the steel's qualities? And is it as a, at a price that's right? Um, so what we're seeing is we need to to kind of move away from that treating steel as a pure commodity if you want the demand signals to to be strong enough to to do that. But we've we've been working on a really interesting initiative with the climate group called Steel Zero, which is aimed at exactly that: getting buyers of steel to actually send really strong commitments to the market around their purchasing of responsibly produced steel. And in in that uh, kind of uh, commitment we have you know organizations like Lendlease which are in building and construction we have Ersted which is in the renewable energy business a variety of organizations that are sending those market signals in what is a, a commoditized market mm-hmm. so what about the potential for a differentiated market you know one market for green steel for these premium purchases for these for these companies that want to be able to differentiate their products because i know that product differentiation is a big deal for volvo and scania and some of these other auto make auto and truck makers and then another sort of mass commodity market could you see the market bifurcating like that it, it might end up it's what's happening right now to a certain degree i think a lot of it is linked to the very different types of end users of steel um you know the, there's no surprise why the automotive sector is so keen to to make you know inroads into purchasing 
green steel. Um, they're one of the most consumer-facing parts of the steel value chain. You know, you you make a conscious choice as a buyer when you when you get a car, and the automotive sector has been challenged. Uh, you know, they've they've had to go through the whole revolution of slowly migrating to electric vehicles because of the emissions from cars themselves. But now that you know, and again, we can argue: have we made enough inroads on electric vehicles? That's still a question mark. But now there's the car itself. You know, is this responsibly produced? Are the materials, you know, what's the the embodied carbon in the materials that go into making my car? And as a consumer, a buyer of a, of a vehicle, you know, am I interested in knowing whether this is responsibly produced or not? Yes, probably I am, and I want to know what the carbon footprint of my car is, not just when I drive it, but how it's produced. You know, kind of cradle to wheel uh, in a certain way. So I'm not entirely surprised that the automotive sector has been, you know, one of one of the most advanced in terms of committing to buying significant volumes of of low embodied carbon steel because they have a massive challenge ahead. And steel is just one of many, many materials that go into making a car anyway. Um, whether the other sectors will follow suit or not, it's it's hard to tell. Um, you may end up with two kind of differentiated markets. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, the the certainty right now is that there will, at least for the foreseeable future, probably be a premium on green steel. Um, whether that maintains itself, again, I'm not entirely sure that past, I think it'll depend on where we get to past 2030. Uh, if we're on track, uh, which, you know, fingers crossed we will be, at least for the steel sector, then, then maybe that premium will no longer be required. Uh, there's a lot of sectors where, you know, premiums for better aren't necessarily uh, the case anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and, and what about carbon pricing? How do you see that playing a role in the the production of steel? And we're starting to see some some of these concepts really take a strong hold in Europe. So, so what are your thoughts on this concept and where it's going in relation yeah, to Yeah, so Responsible Steel doesn't have an official position on carbon pricing policy yet. Uh, that might be something we'll develop in the future. Uh, but that being said, you know, without a real price for carbon, how how else do you encourage, uh, you know, a whole sector to take action? You know, per- personally, I think that emitting should have a cost and that cost should be reflective of the reality of the impact that that carbon has. Um, I think we can't also accept that steelmakers compete unfairly based on how important the reduction of emissions is to one government or the other. So it's a it's a harsh it's a hard question. Um, you know, the the reality of carbon emissions has a cost. It has a cost for every single one of us, uh, but more importantly, it has a cost for for future generations as well. And I personally am a firm believer that that should be incorporated into the cost of doing business. So. Let's jump ahead. Um, are we going to see a major disruption in the global industry as a result of hydrogen-based direct reduction, or is this just a blip? <laughs> oh, if only I had a crystal ball, I would invest in all the right things and make substantial <laughs> amounts of money. Um, no, but jo- joking aside, I think, f- first of all, you know, what sort of hydrogen are we talking about? Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's green hydrogen and there's blue hydrogen. And obviously, if, if hydrogen production isn't CO2 free, then you're just postponing the inevitable. Um, I think, you know, green hydrogen most definitely has, has a you know, very, very big role to play in, in decarbonizing the industry. And I expect it will be a preferred option in, in countries and regions where the grid isn't majoritarily fossil fuel based. So what you'll see is a potentially a geographical distinction uh, slowly emerge. Um, the big question will be also how affordable is that green energy? I think if you look at the recent challenges around energy prices in Europe and, and more specifically here in the UK, it might be a, a relatively steep hill to, to climb. But I don't think we can ignore the disruptive en- element of, of hydrogen. Uh, the big challenge is cost, as with everything, and uh, infrastructure. Um, but it's not the only disruptive tech out there. You know, there's using electrical energy through an electrolysis-based process. Uh, there's there's many other kind of disruptive uh, technologies out there. I think that the beauty of, of the challenge ahead is, is that there are solutions now which can be scaled up 
there is existing technology that can be applied. But in my mind, the most important thing is this requires, you know, the perfect storm or, or the perfect triumvirate, for, for lack of a better word, where you need steelmakers that want to change and have the financial means to do so. You need government policy that encourages not just the production, but also the purchasing of, of low carbon steel. And you need buyers of steel that are increasingly committing to buying lower carbon steel. And for all those things to happen together, it requires immense, not just political will, but societal pressure as well. So it's not just cars. And that's what's interesting about talking to Anne Claire Howard. It comes back to price signals. And it comes back to making a commitment to paying more for green steel and moving it beyond steel, beyond a commodity. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate how she gave us some insights into how the automobile sector is the first mover here and why, you know, they've got these specific requirements for steel. And typically they have these direct relationships with the suppliers that makes sense that they would want to invest in these plants because it's part of how they've always always done business. I feel like, though, for commodity buyers... It's all, since it's all based on price, you know, how do you get a price-sensitive market to adopt the more expensive option? Well, policy can play a role. You know, I, the EU's carbon border adjustment does that. First, you pay for your carbon within the EU. And then if you're bringing in something from outside of the EU, it's mm-hmm. basically the cost of that is adjusted by what there would be if there was an equivalent carbon tax on that product where it was made. Yeah, I get that. And you know me. Do we always have to depend on policy? (laughs) I'm always going to ask that question. Uh, And I'm wondering, is there another way that we can encourage companies to adopt green steel, even if it's a commodity and it might be more expensive, that doesn't require government policy? Yeah, well, I think it's a combination of things. Because just like solar, policy is going to play a bigger part in getting things started. You know, along with these voluntary commitments that auto companies and others have made to pay more for green steel. And this, this begs the question, when, just like solar, does green steels just become the cheaper option? Mm-hmm. And, you know, since coal always has a cost, this is the same thing we see in the power sector. Coal always has a cost to mine and to deliver to the plant. So at what point does making hydrogen on site just simply beat that cost? I mean, yeah, for primary steel, yes. And I can see how that, even if we could get more of a circular economy going with recycled steel, then, you know, that could also help bring down the costs. And maybe there's other organizations that could set up, change the green building standards to enforce building codes to influence markets by adopting more green steel. So giving people greater points on their their green buildings if they're using steel that's more responsibly procured. Careful, Lisa um, Ann, that's policy. <laughs> yes, well, and I was going to note that low it's, carbon... But it's, not, but it's not being set by a government. It's being set by a trade organization. Oh, you're talking about voluntary... Oh, yeah, like U.S. Building Council. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see that. Though I will note that there is, there is low carbon procurement standards that are starting to become adopted in the building industries. And actually, the U.S. government is helping to push these forward these low carbon building. And so, yeah, I can see green steel being part of that, given that steel is one of the more carbon intensive materials that we use in our buildings. So, okay, Christian, let me ask you, how long do we have to wait until green steel is the new normal? Well, (laughs) I think the next 15 years are going to be really dramatic. I think that people again and again, we've underestimated the acceleration of the demand for decarbonization. And we've also underestimated how quickly these things start to move. You know, there's all the forecasts about solar that were too low. You know, there's the forecasts of electric vehicle adoption that have been too low. Over and over again, we think, oh, well, they're going to be, they're going to stay expensive longer. You know, and I think that green hydrogen is similarly going to beat the forecasts as more comes online. And that leads to green steel becoming more widely adopted. So, yeah, maybe your blast furnace is safe right now, but I don't think that's going to be acceptable in 2030. And I think just like other industries, we're going to see that sort of accelerating change happen. Especially if they want to attract younger generations into these businesses and retain them, make them, you, want, you need to make these old, heavy industries inspiring for people to want to have careers in them because people are, are aging out. 
yeah. of these industries. So I'm excited that, you know, the next 15 years we could see the steel industry look a lot greener than it is today. And that's definitely inspiring. But I wonder, is it going to be enough to save us from the worst effects of climate change? Well, I think it plays a role, just like all the other sectors play a role. You know, just like electricity plays a role and transportation plays a role. And I think that just like the coal-fired power plants in the United States, those who are hanging on to the past are going to see their world crumble. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as Thomas Koch Blank said, this could result in a big shift, where if the steelmakers in some of the nations that currently have steelmaking capacity just hold on and decide not to change we could see new steel plants pop up and start to beat them in, you know, start to undercut them in Brazil or Australia or South Africa mm-hmm. if legacy plant owners don't get with the program mm-hmm. because the future is not going to look like the past. Wait, what? Wait, didn't I hear that in our first episode? <laughs> Christian? <laughs> we come full circle. The 21st century is a time of accelerating change. You either move yeah. with the flow or you get buried under the wave. Ah, that's that's a good surfer analogy. That's my Santa Cruz coming back. There you go. I could I could feel that. I could feel that. Wow. Well, full circle with our because this is our last episode of this season, and so I really I that's a great you did a great job with that, Christian. So thank you for bringing us this topic on green steel because it's really interesting, and I of course hadn't had any chance to to research it, but you really dug in and helped us bring this together. So thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. And thank you, Earthlings, for joining us on this journey. We look forward to bringing you more interesting stories about the future of our world in the next few months. So we're not going away. So just hit us up on social media and give us an email. Give us your feedback if you want. And if you don't, that's fine, too. Uh, But we're going to go. We're going to go away into production mode and get some more episodes out for you. Yeah, and definitely, Earthlings, let us know what you'd like to hear about in season two, which we're going to be starting work on soon. And until then, we hope each daily spin of yours on this beautiful blue-green space flower brings you greater understanding of the world around you. Bye, Earthlings. Bye.